Welcome to the HJ Talks About Abuse podcast, the podcast where we talk about sexual abuse cases in the hope that it will assist listeners in openly discussing topics which have been ignored for too long. This podcast is brought to you by the abuse team at Hugh James. We are lawyers, so we tend to speak about the legal aspects of abuse cases, but we aren't too shy to speak up about the broader issues faced by survivors of sexual abuse too. We hope that you find it interesting, but more than that, if you are a survivor of sexual abuse, we hope that you find our discussion empowering. Hello podcast listeners, my name is Alan Collins, I'm the partner and I head up the abuse team at Hugh James and I'm joined by my colleague Danielle Vincent. Hi Danny. Hi Alan. And today we have a guest and that guest is Tom Farr from CIS UK. Hi Tom. And thanks Hi, for joining. No problem at all. Thank you for having me. Thank you very much. So, might be useful, Tom, if you can tell us a little bit about CEASE. Sure. So, CEASE UK is the Centre to End All Sexual Exploitation. We're a national human rights charity. Our mission, effectively, is to seek to educate the public about the reality of sexual exploitation, both within the UK and because of the nature of the work in a wider global context, but secondly also to advocate for change around what we see and what we say are the major sort of driving factors and and, uh, facilitators of sexual exploitation, namely pornography industry, prostitution industry, and then the, the various things that feed into that, such as human trafficking and things that result from that, such as child sexual exploitation. So, Effectively, we want to take a human rights approach to what we say and what we see as issues that are all very closely connected and shouldn't be looked at in a silo. Okay, heavy subject and with heavy subjects within a heavy subject. So if we talk, for example, prostitution, obviously, you know, there's been lots of campaigns over the years to try and stop prostitution, change the criminal law to, you know, to criminalise, you know, and to create particular offences aimed at men, I suppose, for want of a better way of putting it. But these campaigns and calls for reforms always seem to hit the buffers. Why is that? I think that predominantly dealing with the sort of buffer issue is that it is rooted in a kind of cultural misunderstanding of prostitution. So if you look at somewhere like Sweden, for instance, where they introduced a change in the law over 20 years ago now, they're looked at by certainly people within the sector, but more broadly speaking, as as taking a more progressive approach to it in terms of recognising prostitution, not as something that is to be brushed under the rug, you know, in a kind of moralising Victorian era way, but something that actually is growing and sadly developing human rights crisis. Whereas if you look at the UK, for instance, I think to our detriment and to our shame, we are certainly ignoring the issues within that. And and it's reflected in the growth of, for want of a better term, the prostitution market. You know, we have people that are, are getting trafficked into the UK from countries such as Romania and certainly, you know, from from elsewhere in Europe. And we can't do anything about it because we are still recognised or we're still failing to recognise prostitution as a human rights crisis. And we're kind of just brushing it under the rug and ignoring it. So I think listeners would say, okay, understand, Tom, where you're coming from. But there are those who argue that for some women and maybe men as well, because you can get male prostitutes as well as female prostitutes, of course. But 
it's freedom of, you know, liberties and libertarian issues. You know, they say, this is what I want to do. I'm under no pressure to do this, to sell my my body, so to speak. This is something that I want to do. I'm not pressurised. I'm my own person. This is what I want to do. So isn't that a separate issue from trying to stop people being exploited, you know, to protect those people who don't have a choice, who are being trafficked or coerced or some way of money or violence or threats, whatever it happens to be. So aren't you missing the point? that we all understand about trafficking or we ought to understand about trafficking and coercion and so on. But in dealing with that, you don't want to be curtailing somebody's freedom of choice, their liberty. Yeah, I I think it's very interesting on the phrase you use in terms of missing the point, because the way that we approach it, certainly within the sector and from a a human rights perspective and certainly a, a human rights law perspective, is that it's that dividing line between what we say is a systemic and certainly a systematic class exploitation of vast swathes of predominantly women, but as you mentioned, there are also men involved and transgender people as well. So this is something that is certainly rooted in sex class inequality, but that's not to say it's necessarily limited to that. So when you talk about issues such as individual liberty, I think that it's in effect a red herring because I'm certainly of the the school of thought that there are people who willingly engage in that. And certainly with the development of websites such as OnlyFans and the wider explosion of the porn industry, which is effectively a form of prostitution, it's prostitution with with a camera in terms of the, the actual transactions that are taking place, certainly in exchange for when you view it as exchange of sex for money. So I believe there are certainly people that that willingly engage in that. However, when you look from a statistical point of view, for instance, within prostitution, the figures for those who are exploited in one way or another, either in terms of being controlled by a pimp or they have been trafficked or they have effectively no other means of, for want of a better word, income or work, it very, very quickly dissipates this, this illusion of choice because there is simply no choice. If you have to do that to survive, then we're saying this is the exploitation because ultimately, the, as I say, this is rooted in a sex class inequality and overwhelmingly it is men purchasing sexual access to women. And therefore we say that, you know, we should recognise that and we should stop that as much as possible, you know, and, and in effect, as, as I mentioned, this is a human rights law issue. This is a case of balancing the rights of individuals against the rights of other individuals. And we say that overwhelmingly it should fall on the side of those. We should be preventing sexual exploitation as opposed to, you know, the, the, the few individuals that quote unquote willingly engage in it. So what needs to change in the law? What do you actually criminalise? So we advocate for what's called the abolitionist model. And this is twofold, effectively. There's a reduction approach where what we first want to do is deter, as I say, men purchasing sexual access, which is overwhelmingly what it is. But equally, we want to decriminalise those who are involved in prostitution because, as I've said, they are overwhelmingly exploited or oppressed in one way or another. So actually, you know, the... When you look at the law at the moment, for instance, the Modern Slavery Act, there's a statutory defence in there for those who commit criminal offences under duress of trafficking. So if you've got somebody that's been trafficked in to the UK for the purposes of prostitution and they don't have, for instance, immigration papers or they're committing, you know, 
a loitering offence. There may be a statutory defence, but this isn't automatic. So what you then have is people who are criminalised for circumstances entirely out of their control and certainly circumstances that they may have been forced into. So all these things that are coming off it, you know, these individuals who are exploited and they cannot do anything about it, we say that they should be given absolute support to exit the industry while at the same time deterring the demand side of it because the research in Sweden and certainly the research in Oslo in Norway has demonstrated that when you deter demand, i.e. the purchasing, what begins to happen is that you facilitate the exit of the women within the industry and then you reduce the overall market and then that has a knock-on effect of reducing how attractive it is to the wider criminal elements such as, as human traffickers and so on and so forth. Okay, so what needs to happen in the UK? So the, the law at the moment for us is a mess, really. It's We kind of vacillate between certain elements being criminalised in terms of loitering, that's criminalised under the Street Offences Act, but then in terms of actual exchange of sex for money, that isn't criminalised, but then operating within a brothel is. So what we want to see is, as I mentioned, the decriminalisation of anybody who is selling sex, selling sexual access. And while the the onus obviously for us is on those who are exploited, that will of course sweep up everybody who is is theoretically doing it willingly as well. So they they wouldn't be criminalised in any case, even if they are willingly engaging. However, what we do want to see is those who attempt to purchase or do purchase sexual access to be criminalised because the research in Sweden has shown not only does this facilitate a, a tangible effect in the market size and the prevalence of prostitution, but what it also does is actually over a long period of time begins to shift social attitudes. So women are no longer seen as commodities and objects effectively, and, and that filters out into wider society and also how the police view the situation. And that's what we'd like to see, certainly within the UK. So have other countries followed Sweden in this approach? Yeah, so at CIS we actually have a report coming out this week that's examining this exact issue and it's it's a comparative law review between what are effectively the three separate models. So Sweden has the abolitionist or the Nordic model and there are eight other countries at the moment that have implemented that as France, Israel, a few others that, that escape me. <laughs> Yeah. I'll be able to look them up if required. But then there's two other models, which are effectively the, the flip side of the same thing. There's decriminalisation, which is in New Zealand, which theoretically is the rollback of all criminal sanctions for anybody, both buyer and seller. And, and that's then, a bit different from the Swedish approach then. It is, yes. So the idea there was to take, a again, a quote-unquote human rights approach to the issue of prostitution to make it safer and to effectively provide safeguards for those involved in it. But firstly, the research is sort of scarce on, on any side of the debate because of the nature of the industry, it's, it's, it's very hidden. But why has New Zealand effectively gone a stage further than Sweden? Because basically, it sounds as though from what you're saying that New Zealand basically said that prostitution doesn't exist anymore. No, New Zealand, to the contrary, they, they recognise that it, it does exist because it's wrapped up in often political lobbying and, and policy lobbying. 
their approach was to say if we're going to recognise prostitution, we, we should try and make it as safe as possible. So their approach certainly wasn't with the end goal of abolishing the industry. It was effectively to make it safer. But to make it safer, they decriminalised it for all participants. Yes, effectively. There, there are certain theoretical safeguards in there, such as immigration safeguards. You're not allowed to travel to New Zealand if you want to engage in the sex industry. You, you can't get a visa to do that. And there are certain age prohibitions. Those under the age of 18 aren't allowed to engage in it. But what it failed to recognise was that, so again, this is it's wrapped up in the issue of trafficking, is that they said, obviously, if you've been coerced, you're not that's not prostitution, that's exploitation. Yeah. But yeah. what they failed to recognise in New Zealand was that for 12 years, domestic trafficking was an enormous issue, more so than international trafficking. And they introduced the Prostitution Reform Act in 2003. But for 12 years after that, they didn't have a law that criminalised or recognised domestic trafficking. So all that was happening was there were enormous amounts of native individuals, particularly children from vulnerable communities, who were getting domestically trafficked within the region straight into the, the sex industry. And there was no law that recognised this until they amended the Crimes Act in 2016, I believe, to recognise domestic trafficking. As soon as they started to do that, they were saying, hang on a minute, there's a real issue here. And it's spiralled out of control. The market's continuing to grow. There are vast, vast issues with child sexual exploitation and even international trafficking. Often people from Asia and Eurasia are trafficked in under the guise of labour and then put into the sex industry. So it sounds though you're certainly not advocating that the UK should follow the New Zealand approach. No, no, absolutely not. Absolutely not. And there's, I mentioned decriminalisation where the government has effectively rolled back sanctions for all parties. Germany took a slightly different approach where they legalised it. And again, I think this is a slightly false distinction because effectively what they said is we're going to state control it. They have a slightly larger regulatory framework in terms of having to agree to mandatory health checks and things like this. But effectively, the market in Germany is absolutely enormous in terms of how many people are involved in it. Trafficking has spiralled out of control. The number of individuals who have registered in terms of the state regulation is is a drop in the ocean in terms of how big the actual market is. So we say that both those approaches where effectively what they've done is facilitate the sex trade has, mm. has failed from a human rights perspective. You may not have seen this, but last month, the University of New South Wales published a report on the effect of the pandemic on online sexual exploitation. And that's obviously primarily concerned with children and young people. But the authors of the report, that was um, Professor Mike Salter and one of his colleagues, I think, found that as a result of the pandemic, there's been an increase, quite a significant increase, I believe, in offences or potential offences. And that those keen on exploitation have taken advantage of the pandemic and have shifted their attentions. So those who are keen on exploiting the vulnerable just change their business model. So isn't the risk with the Swedish approach or German approach or the New Zealand approach is that those who are keen on making money out of exploitation just change their market? You know, there's customers out there who want whatever. And with that in mind, don't you have to 
deal with the the root of the problem, which is money. You know, there's money to be made out of exploitation. Yeah, a hundred percent. And and this is this is really this goes to the deterrent effect and tackling the demand side of it. Because as you say, business models change, certainly outside of the COVID pandemic, you know, we with the advent of of wider access to the internet. The business model has changed, and we saw that in Sweden actually with the introduction of this law. Is that there was a an increase in online adverts, and often detractors of the Swedish model point to this and they say all that's happened is is effectively the market has moved online. But there are a number of issues with this, namely that what actually happened is that the market didn't just shift online. Firstly, the the street market and the the physical market was actually reduced. Absolutely. So even though there was an increase, uh, that's not to say it was entirely displaced because in every other country, certainly in the surrounding Nordic regions, there was also an increase online anyway, even though they hadn't changed the street law. So what we say is that that is unfortunately just a byproduct of the age that we're living in. And this is something that we will have to get to grips with in terms of, you know, how do you regulate the Internet or how do you kind of recognise that the markets do shift? But in terms of tackling the money issue, the root, the root problem, yeah, you're absolutely right. And this is what we say that tackling demand absolutely does, because it makes it a less attractive prospect from a financial point of view. A, if the market's reducing, because there's simply, you know, you can't get people in there. So there's not as much money to be made. But B, there are then not enough you know, customers for, for one of a sort of less cynical term. So there's less money to be made. So what they then do is shift it elsewhere. And this is this is why I say, you know, we cannot look at this in a, a silo. What we need to do is is to lobby international governments. And, you know, I mean, prostitution is already recognised as a human rights crisis in international treaties, you know, by the UN. All of these different, the, the European Convention recognises sexual exploitation as prostitution as sexual exploitation in, in in a lot of its case law. So what we're saying is that we should be able to implement this on a global stage. And it's very ambitious, I recognise that. Yeah. yeah. But it's, you know, without that kind of ambition and without that desire to to shift things normatively, then nothing will change. What's the UK's government's attitude? It changes there has been movement in the past where the government have said, OK, we're going to get to grips with this. But typically, not a huge amount has been done. I mean, the law hasn't really changed at all in years and years and years. So I'm very hesitant to put too much weight onto what we see as sort of empty words at this stage, you know, until there is tangible change. Because we had a we had an all-party parliamentary group examining this back in 2018. And they said that the, the prevalence of pop-up brothels was spiraling out of control yet nothing's you know nothing's really happened mm. since then so it's work in progress to to put it optimistically uh, yes yeah. so is the appg going to reconvene as far as i'm aware there's there's no dates as of yet i mean it's an ongoing project with dame diana johnson she's recently taken over what i believe is is a sort of sister appg to look at commercial sexual exploitation more broadly mm. And she put a bill through at the beginning of the year or the back end of last year, effectively wanting to introduce the abolitionist model. But the last last I heard that was still in its first reading, effectively. So it's been, I think, kicked into the long grass for a little while. 
Okay. Well, thank you, Tom. Very interesting. And it'd be great to have you back on again to talk about some of the other yeah, issues I would just, we're working on. So if you have you back on, I'm sure our listeners would be delighted to hear from you further. And perhaps you Absolutely. and Dan could liaise and make the necessary arrangements and we'll have another podcast or two with you if that's okay with you because it's 100 percent yeah it's an awful subject but it's also fascinating yes no it, it is and i think that the this is part of cc's mission really is is to to want to educate people about this and certainly we are trying to do that more so you know across all demographics for instance we have a youth coalition at the moment which is is thriving and growing and we're trying to engage young people on this issue because we are seeing the the detrimental effects of this you know even even if somebody's not been sexually exploited per se they might be experiencing it within their relationships in terms of the kind of trickle down effect of normalizing sexual violence within issues such as pornography for instance and that's why we're bringing the case the judicial review against the information commissioner's office because we believe that the government and certainly ICO are failing to recognise the very, very real impacts that the commercial sex industry more widely is having on people of all demographics, but certainly, certainly young children as well. Thank you, Tom. So, yes, I think we need to have you back on to talk about some of these issues. So thanks, Tom. Thanks, no Danny. Thank you, listeners. And do tune in next time. And hopefully we'll have Tom back with us. If not next time, then certainly in the very near future. So thank you, everybody. Thank you for listening to this episode of HJ Talks About Abuse. You can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite podcast player. If you'd like to speak to us about something you've heard today, we'd love to hear from you. Email us at aboutabuse at hjtalks.co.uk.